So, ECPR. Everybody knows about what can go wrong in ECMO. Everyone can talk about coagulopathy. But hopefully I can be the only one to basically change your mind about why ACLS and CPR is the most useless thing in the entire world. And that's why I'm here, to talk to you and be negative. So, ECPR, correcting the failures that ACLS leaves behind. That leaves behind a lot of them. So, as I said before, I have no qualms, I have no ulterior funding, no one from the American Heart Association has ever threatened me. At least not yet. This lecture has not gone online yet. But ACLS is run like a circus. It literally is a circus. You run in the room, nothing useful can happen. And my job today is to walk you through why everything you do and you learn in ACLS is not only useless, but also impossible. If everyone's done reading through this, that's fine. So... The survival, excuse me? Oh, well, I'll make it available. Don't you worry about that. So, in 2013, the New England Journal of Medicine released this saying that, you know what, if you're young and you arrest in the hospital, we can take care of you. Look at this. Every year, I mean, 20, 2010 is where we made changes. We can only expect this to go up from here. We're going to do so much better. They didn't talk about the out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. Look at this, all patients, nothing. Now, if you have a shockable rhythm, you put AEDs in shopping malls and colleges, you're gonna get some people coming back, young people, etc. But the non-shockable rhythms, that, that's atrocious. That's up to 2010, and that's what? 4% surviving? That's insane. And this, I wanted to add in here, is where hypothermia came in. Hypothermia was supposed to revolutionize neurologic output, so to make everybody survive. It's literally the only thing on my board exam that they told us to know after arrest will lead to better outcomes. And it's like, okay, maybe from two to 3%. That's amazing. It's incredible. Uh, so the most recent AHA data shows that out of hospital cardiac arrests with everybody, even though half are getting CPR, 10% are surviving. It's actually gone down, oddly enough. In hospital, we're doing okay. About a quarter of people survive, but is that really good enough? I mean, you have doctors, you have nurses there. Is that acceptable to you? I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. So I kind of step back and I, you, have, you have to just question everything. There's no reason to not ask why is it so bad? Why are we missing the boat on this? So I delved into 2010's AHA guidelines. I just re-upped my uh, ACLS certification not that long ago. Uh, and there are a lot of new developments. So now we say go to 50 millimeters of compression. Not 45, not 40, 50. Don't interrupt anything. Don't stop to intubate, don't stop to check pulses, just keep doing chest compressions and make sure you get over 100 beats. They even gave us some songs to kind of follow along with if you really wanted to. But not around 100, over 100. And that's awesome. So let's take them step by step. 50 millimeters of compression. Sounds awesome, right? I mean, it's all based on this study showing that the deeper you go, the higher, and this is all when you put a monitor on the patient, you can see how deep your compressions are going, pre-hospital, et cetera. You can say that, wow, over 42, that's amazing. It's getting a great increase. And 
Rost, better. One day survival, better. Depth, better. And they all were at 50 millimeters. That's, a, that's awesome, right? Yeah. When you do good CPR, which was defined as uh, around 50 millimeters, or poor CPR, again, you had not only great survival, oh no, not only, no, this is defining good CPR and bad CPR, excuse me, this is showing that not only do you have good survival, but you're also perfusing the, those coronaries really well. And this is good CPR, 35 to 57, poor CPR, up to 40. So that's awesome. And if you perfuse the heart, that means you're perfusing the rest of the body. So that's amazing. So when they looked at it a little bit more in-depthly, they said, as long as you start at a zero for coronary perfusion pressure, meaning that not negative, which can happen, you, you, you get rost as long as you reach 15. And by correlation, you would think you get better coronary perfusion pressure with deeper chest compressions. That must be our goal. Deep chest compressions, good coronary perfusion pressure, you survive. And they kind of, again, further stratified this, saying that, you know, if everyone starts at the same perfusion pressure down here, and you get up to a decent amount of perfusion pressure, there's definitely a difference in survivors and non-survivors. So again, we're going to correlate good coronary perfusion means good brain perfusion means good output. And that coronary perfusion is based completely on the depth of chest compressions. So they've shown that you need a pressure of 25 in the coronaries to reach a pressure of at least eight or quarter of that making it to the brain for good neurologic outcome. That's if you get to them immediately. If you wait six minutes, you now need 35 millimeters of pressure to reach that same uh, cerebral perfusion pressure. If you wait 12 minutes, nothing you do will give the brain enough oxygen. Nothing. And they theorized that that could be due to a multitude of factors. Is it due to the fact that the myocardium becomes what they call a stone heart, where the fibers are just not going to contract well enough to push blood up? Is it due to the chest wall itself becoming very rigid and the distension is no longer being transmitted to that myocardium? So it, ter it turns out that, you know, the brain depending on, on the heart, almost every single level. They've even shown and kind of stratified this, that if you start out doing really terrible chest compressions and then you ramp it up and you do amazing chest compressions, you get up to that 50, you still don't get good coronary perfusion pressure. It doesn't matter. And that's again based on those two theories. So as long as you get to someone right away, like you're sitting there, you're talking to them and then they arrest, that patient will survive. And that's why AHA had you do ACLS. Uh, furthermore, when they took a look at what are people actually doing, they showed that people can start out doing really well, but you can tell them to do 50, they're not going to do very well. This is all undergrads. They can go like a rock star as a bystander, but they start getting less and less and less and less depth. And I'm not a prejudiced person, but 
one gender didn't do as well as the other. <laughs> I'm not going to say which gender, because that would be rude. But regardless, I mean, this is mimicking what would happen out of hospital. Somebody collapses in front of you. You have some, you call, call 911, you do chest impressions. Why? You're not doing anything. Eight minutes of nothing. So it's a fail. We fail at doing 50 millimeters, bottom line. So move on. No one to, to, to kind of give up on that. <laughs> Secondly, minimize pauses in chest compressions. This was a theory. You, you get just enough coronary perfusion going up. You stop, you check a pulse, you attach the, the electrodes, you listen for breathing. Bam. Now you're at zero again. You start up again. Pig model has shown that's true. Bam, bam, bam. Stop. You drop down. Coronary perfusion pressure. And you never... Get, re get up to a point unless you constant chest compressions. You never stop. Completely and utterly get that beautiful coronary perfusion pressure. This is probably why they said don't ever stop doing chest compressions because this is why. But how long can you keep that up? This is a study with pigs where they've shown that, you know, in a whole, how much does your coronary perfusion pressure add up to on the, on the area under the curve. If you do rests and breaks, you get nowhere near as high as if you did continuous chest compressions. Okay, this is a real life model. This isn't just a theory that this isn't a pig with some coronary values in. Uh, and the coronary, the timing for each, the amount of chest compressions per minute with no breaks versus breaks 92 or 62. So any break, even though you're trying for 100 or more, the moment you take a break, you cut your, your mean down to 62, about half of what you're supposed to do by just doing a break. Uh, they've also checked and they said, you know that time you spend you know, analyzing the patient before the patient is actually shocked and the time you wait afterwards to kind of get back on the chest and you switch people out because they've been on for longer than two minutes. What does that do to the patient? Well, if you increase that pre-shock pause as you put the electrodes on and as you kind of get your act all straightened out, as you increase the post-shock pause, and as you, you combine them to that peri-shock pause, you have a decrease in survival. All of this led to the AHA saying, you know what, don't stop chest compressions. As you're charging it up, do chest compressions. My hospital, as we speak, is doing a study where you can do chest impressions through a shock. I've done it before, it's fine, never been published, at least I don't think yet, hopefully not, because uh, they want to do it first. But there's no reason to stop. So that, that may be AHA 2014. Don't stop doing chest impressions during a shock. You have a decreased, this is literally from the paper, every five seconds you don't do chest impressions as you're waiting for a shock, this is what you drop in pre-shock and peri-shock. That's their survival rate from hospital discharge. Okay. Maybe we can, but we don't do a very good job at not stopping chest impressions. There's always some time switching people out. There's always time when somebody wants to throw the ultrasound probe on there and have no one touch the patient. It happens. So maybe we can rely on AHA's last guideline, and that's 100 beats a minute. We can sing Staying Alive, or Another One Bites the Dust, or whatever you'd like, that's fine. <laughs> so 
when they when they looked at it, they said the highest probability of rust is right here at about 130 compressions a minute. Who does that? Very few people. And that's awesome. The patient will come back to life, but they're not going to survive any better. It doesn't matter. And how, how long can you do that? When they tell you, I want you to do 130 chest compressions, you last 45 seconds. That's it. Max. 45 seconds on average. And the, the faster you have to go, the shallower you're going to go. It is literally impossible to do 50 for 120 for two minutes. It simply isn't going to happen. We are terrible. We're humans. It's, gonna, it's the bottom line. So we're humans. Is there a robot who can do this for us? There's a couple. So we have our thumper by Lucas. Lucas came out and said that, wow, you know what? We can do just as good as they can do in the hospital. But they do terrible in the hospital. How's that an accomplishment? That's my question. So now we have a life band. This is a compression device. They say we can do better. We can get you circulation back. We can get you to survive out of the hospital way better. This, this is awesome. Why doesn't every ED do this? Well, when they look at coronary perfusion pressure, you see a dramatic difference between manual and autopulse. It's great, right? I mean, that's, all, that's what it's all about. Fast compressions, added depth, getting good coronary perfusion. Why can't we all do that? They've done a lot of studies, a lot of meta-analyses, showing that manual is nowhere near as good as automatic by the load-bearing bands and everything else. But we don't have a randomized controlled trial. Will we get one? I don't know. But that's been the bottom line is that there's no randomized controlled trial showing benefit. And it's all by hearsay. It's all by, well, these 10 patients got it and these 10 didn't. These 10 did better. Well, why do they do better? Was it because of their baseline? Was it because of, you know, what was it? And all these papers have come out. You know, all of these agree. And they all say the same thing. They all lead to a better survival, get out of the hospital better, but not significant statistically. The, the AHA came out and said there's insufficient evidence to recommend this use at this point. But you can consider it if you have the properly trained personnel at the right place, at the right time, doing the right thing for the right amount of time, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a cop-out, in my opinion, to say that we don't have any information, just try it, see what happens. But there's got to be something else we can do. And that's my point for the whole talk. Is there something else we can kind of lean on and we can probably do that might have a better outcome than all of this? So they've tried a lot of stuff over the years. Not all of it has been useful. But this is one of them. Well, the Mac really does destroy your PowerPoints. That's awesome. I like that. So if we put, if we have the pump in the middle, we do with the ECMO, why can't we put the heart in the middle? Why can't we take over for the heart. And we do have something, we have the cardio help. As I said, McKay's paying me nothing for this. If they're hearing from our webcast or anything and they're in the room, I'm open for suggestions. So this, I'm not gonna say that because it's fine. So this is a centrally cannulated VA ECMO patient that we had that hopefully you'll never have to take care of because they're very dirty, they're very stingy. And this is open, and that's not pleasant. Uh, but this is the right atria. 
going out, oxygenation, aortic arch. Bottom line, this does the work of the heart. This is an external vat, if you will. Uh, and as we've kind of gone over, it's very simple to do it peripherally. Uh, ECPR, though, it's normally this way, and I take offense to this because somebody literally published this knowing that nobody, nobody in their right mind would have it on the same side. If you have to, you can, but you kind of, everyone I know separates it. One leg, one leg, artery, venous, therefore there's no problems with, you know, hitting the wrong artery, going the wrong area, you know, because this pumping out and compressing that will further cause leg ischemia. That's besides the point. So how did I learn how to do this? Well, I went right there, Melbourne, Australia. They told the Alfred, with that, that is a mall, which I thought was funny, but then we have a mall at this hospital, so maybe it's not that funny. So at the critical care complex, this is their beautiful brand new ICU, this beautiful ECMO course they have there, sponsored by McKay. I don't know why ours isn't, that's inappropriate. Uh, well, the way it works is somebody's out on the field, chest, chest pain, EMS comes, throws a life band on them, picks them up, put them right in the ambulance, there's no stoppage of their CPR. Bring them all the way back or fly them back. It's a big country. You've got to fly them sometimes. Come to the Alfred. We have a thumper there waiting for them. We have our own. We, we have two or three sometimes ECMO circuits waiting for them. They don't do the cardio help because it's too expensive. It's socialized medicine. Why waste the money? Uh, all primed up and ready to go. This is Neil. Neil's very nice. He's the, he was the ECHO fellow when I was there. He'd have his TEA probe there, and he'd wait for you to come in. He'd throw the TEA in. He'd watch you do everything. Uh, we'd have a life band up here. We'd pause it only to cannulate. We throw them right on the circuit. We'd do a backflow if we could. The only way to get a backflow in under VA ECMO during ECPR is put it in either before the, the arterial cannula or to wait the next day and do it under uh, VA surgery, um, excuse me, vascular surgery. Because it's impossible once you steal enough blood to support the heart that's now failing to find the SFA. Just, it's not going to happen. Um, so this is kind of how they look. We're uh, intubated at this point and everything. They're being cooled. They're in the cath lab because that's the first stop out of the ED is to figure out that they have a heart attack. I mean, fix this pretty easy. They go right to the ICU and get pretty much put in their own room. Um, or if they're at a hospital that doesn't have ECMO capability, they'll get flown. Uh, you should do this. It's pretty, right? Isn't that all? Look how, how neat and succinct that is. Why don't we do that? Look at that. That's much nicer than the one. Just saying. This is the Australian circuit. It's all, it's, it's, it's if, if you know the Coriolis effect, kind of makes blood flow separately, then you'll understand. But obviously in America, you don't get it. Yeah, I mean, come on. We're so behind the times. But every, and that's because every day we get more centers, but they're not all good. They're all, they, they can cannulate, they can throw you on, but they have the, if you do a lot of ECMO, like if you do a lot of heart casts and do a lot of surgeries, you'll have better outcomes. So the push is to kind of train people in these little smaller hospitals to do the ECPR, throw them in a helicopter, bring them to an ECMO center of excellence, which one region has, and then they'll, they'll run it from there, put, put a VAT in, heart transplant, et cetera. Uh, and is it really that complicated? Is it really hard to do? 
I tell you, it's really not that difficult. Honestly, anyone who can throw in a central line or a renal dialysis line, or even run CRT, excuse me, can run this circuit. So femoral artery, cannula site, found on either cut down or ultrasound. Throw it right in with your backflow cannula, if you have the time to actually do that. Uh, it'll look a little like this. Now, I don't like doing a cut down. I don't like sewing in the cannulas. I don't like doing any of that, but that's all we got. That's the picture I have. Um, you, you can see this is your return cannula going straight up to the heart. This is your multi-stage cannula. It's pretty much bringing blood in from the entire IVC. Um, there's your return cannula there. And we saw this picture yesterday where essentially you just wait for that mixing cloud to kind of go up and down, monitor the heart. You can do this in, in the ICU. You can see that cloud kind of shift back and forth. You can check both the coronary artery perfusion by following troponins. You can look for that mixing cloud to migrate by looking at the differences between the right and the left radial arteries. When, the, when that cloud gets low enough, you can actually see equalization from the heart of those PAO2s, knowing that you're no longer relying on that mm -hmm. circuit for that heart to be maintained. Every day, you can do a transesophageal echo and see if that heart is recovering. And I'm going to show you a video of somebody with a really bad right ventricle due to tricuspid regurge that on VA ECMO did pretty well. So let's, let's see if it plays. So video one, that is not supposed to be that big at all. This is your right, right ventricle, excuse me, right atria, right ventricle, left atria, left ventricle. You can see tricuspid regurge, tricuspid regurge, mm -hmm. tricuspid regurge. When we get a ventricular tube view through the PE, you can see that that and that are dramatically different. A little D sign going here. Someone thrown on VA ECMO. See how they look after a little bit of time on VA ECMO. Oh, it's pretty, right? Looks beautiful. Oh, oh. Oh. Anyway, it looks pretty. So that's that film is from New England New England. Journal of Medicine, uh, right off the internet from a true case. There's someone on VA ECMO, given enough time, enough recovery for that right ventricle to kind of recover, uh, decrease the amount of pulmonary pressure, pushing on that right ventricle, and eventually they got better. So we, let's dissect it. Let's see, can we justify doing this in our hospital? Well, this is the Alfred's protocol, stolen straight from them, borrowed, uh, if you will. And they look at for a reversible problem. It has to be something that we can easily fix. This is not for the 85-year-old guy with five coronary stents on his last leg. This is for people who do not have malignancy, are not under a bad brain injury, who don't have any of these negative outcomes. And sadly, all of this stuff, let's blow it up here. All of these, as you can see, especially asystole greater than 60 minutes, aortic dissection because you're putting a lot of pressure on that, and really bad mitral regurge, these are all things you're not going to know when the patient arrives to your ED. Uh, these are things that you're, you're going to know if they're in, an inpatient, or if you have any history about them, or if they're being transferred from someone, and et cetera, et cetera. But the one I'm going to talk about yesterday is a picture I didn't show you yesterday, is what happens when you put someone on VA ECMO with a bad mitral aortic valve. 
this happens. You go from pretty looking lungs to pretty crappy looking lungs in a matter of seconds. Because all that blood flow that you pushed up through that aortic arch is now lodging itself all throughout those alveolar spaces and interstitium and everything else. So that's why it's good to know who you're cannulating at first. Uh, and anything that's too advanced. Uh, again, all of these are labs you're not going to have, so these are more in-hospital criteria. But again, it's pretty simple. These are things that you know are kind of obvious that you're going to put someone on a short-lived process that you can't fix. Um, so the way it works is you get referred or you get dropped in the field with an arrest. They can figure it out either from the inpatient team or on arrival, does this patient meet criteria? Have they been under chest impressions just long enough to be fixed? If they do have any contraindications, we don't put them on. If no, we're good. We cannulate them and they're great. They get an echo in the first 48 hours. We assess them for anything we can fix. We look at them, we talk to the family. Is this something they would want? Do they want to go on bad? Do they want to be kept alive? Do they have any problems with being kept alive on a machine? Uh, after about two to three days, we look and we say, by echo, the heart's getting better, yes, no. Uh, or any time, is there any uh, complications of this ECMO? If there's any complications or the pulsatility's back, do a formal weaning study. And I'll show you how that goes. Uh, if they pass that weaning study, or if there's any reason to stop doing ECMO, take, we would go to the OR, pull those cannulas out, sew the artery up, hold pressure on the venous side, good to go. If we still can't wean them, they have two more days. So a total of five days on this circuit. Uh, and then we look, again, at five days. Can we reverse them? Can we wean them? If we can, we do. If we don't, maybe a VAD, maybe a transplant. And then now we just end of life. Now, where this is popular and this can work is in a society where the public trust physicians. That is not America. You will not find any family that will not look at you straight in the face and think that you're out against their family member if you tell them. After five days, you can't do anything else for that patient. You can't put a VAD in the patient. They're not a stable candidate. The heart transplant is not going to hold. They will not listen to you. And if they do, more power to you. They've tried this. It doesn't work. Only San Diego in America has made this work. But it's difficult to really justify that. This is how you wean somebody. Let's go over this. Nah, that's, stu that's stupid. That's complicated. I don't want to do that. Uh, there's people who know how to do that. There's people who are trained their entire lives to do that. I don't want to put you on that. That's too much. So I don't like CPR. And I saw a way to do this. But I still think that there's probably a better way. And I'm going to give you some data to show that it's not just me who thinks that. So this is something, you can read this yourself. This is a statement made by some very brilliant people very, very long time ago. The, way that, the reason it's taken so long, I don't know. But this is what they used in their bypass circuits. Maybe, Phil, do you remember this? <laughs> so, so this study here, analyzed patients between 2006, 2004 and 2006. It's a Taiwanese study, basically looking at people put on eCPR or normal CPR to see how they did. 
And the people put on ECPR did remarkably better, twice as good. And when they matched them up, they again did twice as good. Now again, in hospital, short time on, on cannula, you would think, uh, but not exactly true. Because although they did a great job, it still, they still waited 10 minutes after CPR. It still took them 15 minutes, which if you ever tried to do eCPR, putting them on circuit in 15 minutes, it's amazing. But they showed that the longer they waited, the worse the patient mm -hmm. was. So the more you dragged your feet, the more you waited around, and you're like, well, maybe we'll call CT surgery, maybe we'll call the eCPR team, the worse that patient did. And the worse that patient did, the more likely you are to say, they didn't survive anyway. He waited an hour. Probably why. And again, this kind of came up where they look at the amount of time it takes to put someone on a CPR. They do terrible. Uh, you get them right on at that cusp where you can just put that cannula in. They do amazing. But if you wait long enough, they, they equal out the manual CPR numbers. Uh, and when you look at with how people are leaving the hospital, eCPR does remarkably well. Even when you match them up, they do remarkably well. And this is, you know, a decent amount of people for a study. This is a lot of people on eCPR. Again, a lot of, and this is all not American studies. We don't put people on eCPR here. It's all from Asia. But it's all pretty standard and pretty solid data. Um, just last year, this came out and this is hyped a lot by Dan Brody and everything is basically, you know, for, for in-hospital arrest, you get to them fast enough, they're going to do really well. Uh, you can match them. You can have them with the best neurologic output. I mean, uh, very little neuro impairment. They do extremely better than the manual CPR people. And again, they then justify it again. Don't drag your feet. If you're going to do it, do it. You're not going to do it. Don't wait. It's not worth it. So this is a recent. Those times are from the time of arrest until the cannula is ruined. You're you're on. You're flowing. Turn the circuit on. So yes. the circuit has flowing. Exactly. And as you can see, the survival goes down. It's still way better. Even if you wait and you drag your feet for an hour, you still get to if you had done CPR right away. So that this is a recent meta-analysis where they showed that. About, you know, two-fifths of the patients will survive, and almost all the survivors will have great neurologic outcome, eCPR. Uh, and that's way better than we got from the American Heart Association, even if they have the best rhythm and you get to them right away. Uh, and what they can't show is that every survivor, almost every survivor, has a great outcome. How about the out-of-hospital cardiac arrests? Well, not so good. Survivors barely making 5%. This is 36%, maybe an anomaly, that's all in Germany. But look at this. Look at their, their, their neural comes the same, but look at that time for CPR. An hour, two hours, that's insane. I mean, I understand it takes time for you to get to the hospital, but that's really swaying a lot of our data. So only two patients in this whole study here, in 2011, were alive at a month that had good, good, good neuro outcome. This is basically coming out and saying, you know what, eCPR, not the best thing in the world, we're not gonna do it. But when you look at it, 75 minutes is the earliest they did eCPR, 75 minutes. Some of them up to 200 minutes. It's unacceptable. 
if you're gonna get that far, just don't even do it. You're just gonna hurt yourself. You're gonna hurt the whole paper, hurt the whole field. Um, so when they went back and they started matching people and they started doing ECPR a little bit better, they, they started showing that if you get to them fast enough, you have 125th the mortality ranks, rate of conventional CPR. 125th. You have five times the rate of survival, both immediately and in three months. And five times the amount of survivors who have good neurological outcome by just doing eCPR. And this is 50 and 100, not a lot of people, but still a pretty, a pretty good study showing you that for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, when it's done properly with a short amount of pre-cannulation time, you actually can improve people's outcomes. You can actually get to them fast enough and get them out of the hospital with a great outcome. So this, I think this was, yes, this was this year of, they, they, they did a random assessment of 26 hospitals doing eCPR and 20 hospitals doing conventional CPR. Some of them exactly the same. And they tried to determine how's this outcome? This is all Japan, again, all Asian studies. Uh, and they were showing that 12% versus 1.5% for pretty good neurologic outcome at one month and 12% versus 2.5% at six months, again, with the same great neurologic outcome. Again, only doing exactly what the AHA wants us to do versus this new novel product. So what they said is that as long as you put them in the right bundle and you cool them, you give them enough support, they actually use balloon pumps there, which is kind of interesting. They have amazing outcomes by just doing it on a good protocol at the right center who know what they're doing under the right amount of time. There's 124 ECMO centers in Japan, by the way. So you can, in Japan's time, so you can be in an ECMO center really fast. I'm not sure, this is probably more than 120 in the US, but. But, but it's like, very spread out. I mean, look at San Antonio proper. There's one. And it's very hard walking in that gate without a good they, they, reason. They probably may have done it but that's a lot of those transport times with 124 centers in the country that's not big. It's a lot of miles that complicates things, but it would all fit inside Texas. And there's not 124 centers that are that. Nope. So the AHA just came out and said, okay, ECPR is great for in and out of hospital cardiac arrests if they're of the right patient and you can correct them. In settings where you have easily accessible care for eCPR. So that's something. It's the same hedge bet that they gave the compressions, but it's for something that perhaps might have a better outcome if we have enough people buying into it and whatnot. And then last but not least, this, ju this just came out maybe a month ago from a few of the great minds, Dan Brody, Alan Combs over in France, He's heading to the, the Eolia trial right now, uh, showing that, you know what? I think eCPR will be the wave of the future. Now, again, they're kind of swayed. They kind of have their entire career based in ECMO, but I, I can still believe them because why not? Uh, and I, I can believe them because of this guy right here. This is a guy who came back to the hospital while I was there. He collapsed playing golf. Got the same protocol I showed you for the Alfred. Went to the hospital, walked out of the hospital. I was there, in the time I was there, I saw seven ECPR cases. Five of them walked out of the hospital. The biggest complaint 
one guy had is that he can't do his crossword puzzles as fast as he used to. But he's hoping that will come back. That was it. He had just gotten back from a vacation, collapsed in his, in, his, in his home. So it can work. And I know that we can do it. Because I've seen that we can do it. And that's here. That's us. That's our people. That's easy as that. I mean, you've seen this before. You've seen these people? They do amazing work. You should probably... So, anyway, so I still think that CPR is as easy as CAB. They think you can add an E at the end of it. I think you can put ECPR on for the last edge of that CAB, ABC, whatever you want. That's it.